In the beginning, their stadiums were either antiquated or inadequate. Most of their cities were considered minor league. Their coaches and players were rejects or retreads. Their franchises were scorned and sabotaged by the NFL establishment. There's no question about it. The AFL was the underdog. No one cared about the AFL. No one ever gave it a chance. You know, they call us a Mickey Mouse League at one particular stage of our growth and development. As an athlete, I was upset because everybody kept telling me that I wasn't good enough and we weren't good enough to play with them. The AFL was a life for all of us, and we had a chance to take something on, to be an underdog, and to win. I think the AFL was the closest thing that I could find to family. I don't think I would have come close to the image of Broadway Joe and the Jets had I been somewhere in the NFL. We were entertainers. We made people feel good. We made people feel like they were a part of the team. It had brilliant tradition, great players, love, camaraderie, and a common goal that we all believed in. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. Let's get going, shall we? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And as that clip uh, gave you some uh, uh, tip off, right, we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit about the uh, American Football League, the AFL, uh, but also uh, the uh, the league that was uh, the predecessor challenger to the NFL at the uh, end of the 1940s, the All-American Football Conference, AAFC, uh, for you shorthanders out there. Uh, both uh, uh, leagues that we have uh, explored a bit in uh, previous episodes. But we're going to use them as bookends uh, to frame our conversation today around really the NFL of the 1950s, uh, arguably the time when the league uh, really congealed and uh, really started to earn its professional stripes You know, from its... Uh, rough and scruffy days uh, before, during, and uh, just after World War II, uh, and then uh, beckoning into the modern era of the 1960s uh, with the AFL and uh, its colorful, splashy uh, approach to a more high-octane football. It's important uh, to understand the uh, uh, the contributions and the challenges that uh, both the AAFC in the late 40s and the AFL in the early and, and the rest of the 1960s uh, had on uh, the NFL, and uh, without uh, understanding a, a bit of uh, 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 some of the uh, economic and regulatory uh, push, I guess that those uh, these challenger leagues had on the NFL, uh, we wouldn't kind of really have the NFL that we have today. And that's kind of where we're uh, going to be circling our uh, our wagons today uh, with our guest uh, David Surdam, who is the uh, let me make sure I get this uh, title correct. He is the professor of economics and David W. Wilson Business Ethics Fellow at the University of Northern Iowa. And uh, he is uh, the author of a um, very deeply researched and uh, intriguing book uh, that came out a couple of years back from our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. It's called Run to Glory and Profits, The Economic Rise of the NFL During the 1950s. Now, that may sound a little wonky, and uh, Professor Surdam is a uh, an economist uh, by trade, but uh, these are fascinating topics uh, to understand 
uh, as we kind of sort of delve into uh, the rationale of why uh, professional sports are the way they are today, how they became that way, and frankly, some of the uh, the tenets of what uh, motivates uh, challenger leagues, uh, and not just in football, to give it a go and uh, and maybe uh, ch- uh, tackle, if you will, or, or challenge uh, some of the economic tenets of, uh, of the incumbent, in this case, the NFL. Uh, so in other words, the story of the NFL, especially in the 1950s, uh, is not only about is in and of itself the league, but it's also about sort of the uh, the challenges that came to that league via the AAFC and the AFL, which uh, bookends uh, this period of time around the NFL. And we're going to be talking about all of those things uh, with our guest, uh, David Serdam, in uh, just a couple of seconds. So stay tuned. You will learn a ton, uh, as I did and uh, often do here on this little show. A couple of promotional things. Let us uh, get to those, shall we? You uh, AFL fans will find and uh, and be delighted in uh, two of our uh, sponsors, of course, this week, uh, where you will find some AFL garb uh, uh, for and uh, and items, frankly, to enjoy. Uh, on the garb side, you want to go to OldSchoolShirts.com, uh, OldSchoolShirts.com. Use the promo code GoodSeats, and uh, you will get 10% off all of your purchases of such high-quality logo wear uh, in T-shirt form uh, from various teams and leagues that uh, are, are not around anymore, including a very smart-looking AFL uh, faded uh, wash T-shirt uh, that is there on the site that uh, if uh, if today's episode gets your motor running, uh, it's a great way to uh, snag a really cool uh, and high-quality shirt of the AFL there at OldSchoolShirts.com. That's not the only thing you're going to find there. You can find tons of things from teams and leagues, previous incarnations, hell, even old radio station logos uh, and uh, and malls of uh, and uh, shopping centers of various uh, uh, you know, historical uh, artifactness, if that's a word. It, all kinds of very fun and cool stuff. OldSchoolShirts.com. Make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS, whether it's for that AFL shirt or otherwise. And please enjoy 10% off all of your purchases uh, when you use that promo code. We appreciate them and uh, you uh, trying them out at OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, also, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com uh, is uh, the place to go to find all kinds of interesting uh, memorabilia and artifacts, and you will indeed find a bunch of American Football League stuff there too. Some great programs, some very stunning uh, color photography there, uh, and uh, I'm not sure there's any AAFC stuff in there, uh, but uh, you never know what Dean Mitchell and friends are putting up there every week. They get all kinds of inventory uh, uh, on a weekly almost basis, so you might want to check out and see if there's uh, maybe some old 1940s um, uh, Chicago Rockets or Los Angeles Dons material, but I can assure you, I do know, having just checked at the site a couple of uh, couple of hours ago, you will indeed find some AFL stuff, uh, not only about the league, but also teams and, and programs and, and media guides and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there's so much more there besides just football in those two leagues, of course. And again, sportshistorycollectibles.com, that's the place to go to bookmark. And of course, we've got you covered with a discount there too, don't you know? Uh, you want to use the promo code? Wait for it. Good seats. Uh, I knew you knew what that was. Good seats. Yes, that's the promo code at sportshistorycollectibles.com, and you will get 15% off all of your purchases there. So as they say, please indeed visit there early and visit there often. And we thank Dean uh, Mitchell and uh, his colleagues at sportshistorycollectibles.com. All right. So uh, we've uh, wetted your whistle, shall we say, with uh, all things nostalgic. Let us uh, dial the Wayback Machine to uh, the 1950s. Actually, we're going to start this conversation uh, with uh, 
uh, Professor Shurdam in uh, in the late 1940s, really, uh, when the uh, All-America Football Conference was really sort of getting going uh, in the uh, post-war era, uh, the economics uh, of the United States were changing and uh, people were looking more inward and back uh, to the home front. And uh, pro football was uh, indeed starting to flourish and uh, including the NFL, of course. But the AAFC, very interesting challenger to the NFL at that point. And uh, that's kind of where our story begins. And we uh, encourage you to listen to our very interesting conversation with the good professor coming up right now. It's very interesting in our conversations around uh, pro football and its various forms to date. Uh, there's some definitely some themes that I think we're going to touch on in our conversation today that that you outlined very um, uh, clearly uh, in in your work. But before we get to the work itself, give us uh, give our audience some background as to who you are, what you do for a living, and how you stumbled into uh, this tome about uh, what I would argue are the pivotal years uh, of the NFL's life. I'm probably the only um, Korean-American working in the uh, history of sports, although when I worked in the Civil War, there aren't too many Asian-Americans doing um, sports in the Civil War. They usually gravitate toward more serious topics, I suppose, although to NFL fans, uh, there's nothing more serious than the NFL, I suppose. My family certainly was not a football family. My parents uh, prohibited my brother, my older brother from playing football, even though he might have been a pretty good player. Uh, the geometry teacher who served as our varsity coach, who was actually quite successful, um, he was able to mold our our class in the state championship one year at a school that had no football tradition. But he was always asking me to come out for the team, and I'm not exactly sure why. He claimed that I would never get hurt because, the, as in his words, the small guy just curled up on a ball and everybody just piled on him. But that didn't sound very appealing to me, so I didn't buy that. Uh, I, he never saw me try to play sandlot ball, but I couldn't catch the ball. I couldn't run the ball. I couldn't kick the ball. I couldn't pass the ball. couldn't tackle anybody. So I'm not really sure why he wanted me on the team, maybe to raise the team GPA or something. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> always been a source of mystery to me. I uh, grew up playing stratomatic baseball quite a bit. They also had stratomatic football, which was actually a more enjoyable game. There was a lot more strategy because you had to play, make all the play calls. You had to set up your defenses and rearrange the players and everything. And that was kind of fun. And then I've always liked sports history. And then when I went to the University of Oregon for my undergraduate degree, we had to do a senior thesis for the Robert D. Clark Honors College. And I chose to uh, use the mainframe computer to do regression analysis of baseball run production. And that resulted in finding that on-base percentage and slugging average explain uh, the vast majority of the variance in baseball run production. In other words, um, Moneyball, decade before Moneyball. Sure. Um, but I wasn't the first to do that because there were other researchers using computers to, uh, and they had found similar similar results. So while well early in the 1960s when these people were working, they pretty much had discounted the batting average as a very important statistic. And uh, they were touting slugging average and on base. So uh, my work just simply confirmed what they were doing. So as far as football, the reason I did the book on football was because of those congressional hearings in the 1950s. The one in 1957, they had quite a bit of economic and financial data for five seasons, 1952 to 56, and they requested that of the four major team sports at the time, uh, baseball, of course, Paramount, football, then basketball and hockey. Uh, the hockey, I, I will n probably never do a book on. A, I don't know much about hockey, and B, there were only six teams, and one of them didn't bother to send in the numbers, so you can't really 
make any definitive statements. In addition, three of the hockey teams were owned by the same family. <laughs> so that uh, created lots of suspicions in the minds of legislators and probably in the fans. Um, so they asked for a list of the trades. But be that as it may, football, they, they did have fairly detailed numbers so you could uh, see how the league operated. Unfortunately, they had game-by-game information only for the 1956 season. It would have been wonderful if they'd had it for more seasons. I I could have come up with other findings. But um, as I delved into it, it was fascinating to see the various characters. Of course, I I was familiar with Hallis and some of those other people. But I learned a lot about the um, contratemps with the All-America Football Conference and then later the American Football League. And that's those uh, comprise a couple chapters in the book. So the the book was itself what did that that, that was that a, a dedicated effort? Was it part of your other research and or teaching? Because um, uh, it, it's it's a very substantial tome, and and we're going to get into it right, which is I think hopefully of interest to our audience because you know besides sort of the statistics and sort of the 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 uh, you know interesting little stories here and there, right? This is. This really is a, 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 I want to say expose, but a real investigation, if you will, into the economic and arguably some legal and regulatory underpinnings of what uh, what is now we you know the uh, the mainstream NFL and, and its more formative years. Well, that's certainly true. I guess um, I've been working on a book on Fortin Fortin Society in the 1950s in the United States, and then eventually I'll probably work on a history of uh, the ethics of sports down the road. But um, this book, along with a couple of the other books using that 1957 and some earlier data, um, I combined into a book on the antitrust legislation focusing on the congressional hearings. And so I read probably 15, 20 congressional hearings. They're actually not as boring as they might sound. At first, I thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. But there were some amusing and some interesting statements made. For instance, uh, Burt Bell blurted out that uh, their new form of the reserve clause ended servitude, which was a stunning statement on his part that they anybody associated with professional sports would even allude to the player operating on servitude, which in a sense they were with the reserve clause. So it was it was pretty interesting. I doubt Pete Rosell or any of the subsequent commissioners would have made the same uh, same error. Yeah, that's interesting. We had um, uh, Upton Bell, uh, Bert's son, on uh, a previous episode. Oh, okay. And, and, and he, you know, in his book, he's got a book out uh, called... Um, Oh, uh, there at the beginning or uh, present at the beginning. Right. And it uh, took a lot of uh, uh, life lessons, but also some early uh, understanding of uh, of the league, obviously, in very formative years uh, and uh, and and took that with him in his uh, football career. But, yeah, I mean, Burt Bell was um, in many respects uh, uh, kind of uh, the patron saint of the NFL, taking it from. You know, it's it's uh, somewhat uh, wild and, and and rough-edged kind of uh, start into something approaching what Roselle uh, and others would wind up uh, kind of perfecting, right? Which is sort of a a stable uh, and very professionally run uh, and profitable league. Well, that's certainly correct. If you go back to the early years when they first started in 1920 or whenever that was. Uh, you know, I guess it was 1920 with the American Pro Football Association. Um, that league was basically chaos. Teams played different numbers of games, 
and different numbers of road and away games. At the end of the season, they decided they vote on who won, sort of similar to college, I guess. So in some ways, I suppose you can't laugh at them too much. But the problem was that there was no clear-cut way of determining a winning the champion. And so um, there were all sorts of teams, to use the biblical phrase, many teams were called, few survived. And uh, But this is similar to the National Basketball Association and similar to Major League Baseball. If you go back in the 1870s, they had lots of turnover. So these leagues, um, when they first start up, there's no guarantee of success. And there's a lot of people going, going bust on these things because it's hard to set them up. Um, and especially because even though there had been Major League Baseball, there was still sort of an animus towards professionalization of sports. A lot of people still viewed these as games. College football dwarfed the NFL way into the 1950s. And, of course, the colleges had built in loyal fans and an alumni system and so on. So it's no surprise that for many years, college football and college basketball reigned supreme, and both of those leagues would have trouble gaining traction. It's always kind of funny to think that for many years, a lot of people, including some of the sports writers, not all of them, but a few of the sports writers were of the opinion that the college players would outperform the pro players in games. And of course, today that's just risible. Nobody would make that assertion. But um, that's just how... um, dubious these professional leagues were. Well, okay, and I, you could make the argument that, and as we sort of get into this, like the 1950s, uh, if you had to pick a decade, right, was probably uh, the uh, clear period of time by which uh, that professionalism with a capital P really started to to come into play uh, and, and, and distancing, I guess, itself from uh, what I think most people, to your point, would agree would have been a uh, a better played version of the sport, that being in the collegiate level, right? Well, they, some of the college coaches and some of the fans and some of the people who were supporters of the college thought that the esprit de corps of the college boys would uh, make up for the mercenary aspect, I suppose, of the professional players. They had preseason games between a, a group of college all-stars versus, I believe it was the reigning champions. Now, for on several levels, that's just not a very meaningful game because you're throwing a group of individuals together, so it's sort of similar to World Cup soccer, where these soccer, national soccer teams are throwing together people from various professional or other teams, and then they're they practice for a little bit and they throw them out there. I mean, I think any football fan would probably say, well, that's just not going to uh, show those college players to their best versus an established team. Um, I, I don't even, I mean, I suppose if they had had the worst NFL team drub the college all-stars, maybe that would have been more definitive um, evidence. But of course, nobody's going to suggest that. Well, let, let's get into some of the uh, the formative uh, years, right? So, um, as we sort of get into uh, the the meat of, uh, of of your of your book and sort of the, some of the thesis about uh, how the NFL became what it what it's become, um, it kind of really starts, though. I think you're not only the story, but sort of the uh, I guess the economic definitions, if you will, or the regulatory and the you know, the professional uh, outlines, if you will, with um, a post World War II challenger in the All-American Football Conference. You want to give our audience a bit of a sense of, and we've explored that a little bit in a couple of other episodes, but um, it's probably helpful background because without the AAFC, uh, you it, it seems to me that you could make the argument the NFL may not have gotten uh, its act together as quickly as it did by the end of the decade. Oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, 
economists generally do think that competition spurs people to improve the product. Naturally, World War II was very disruptive. It disrupted college football, and then it disrupted the pros, even though the pros did play during the war. But a lot of the best players were serving in the military, and when they came back, it wasn't obvious who had contracts with these players. In fact, most players didn't have contracts. So therefore, it was um, verging on a period of complete free agency. Uh, some of the players did have contracts, presumably those who had played in 1945 and so on. So the Cleveland, now Los Angeles Rams, presumably had the bulk of their player pack. But somebody such as Paul Brown could literally just go out and say, you want to play for me? You want to play for me? And he had been a successful Big Ten coach, and the Big Ten, of course, at the time was perhaps the premier college league. And he knew the players, plus he had coached at the Naval Training Stations in, in Great Lakes Naval Training uh, north of Chicago. So he knew the, he knew who was good. And you think about the people he selected, Otto Graham, at quarterback. Now, he didn't get a lot of um, attention that these days, but he led the team to 10 championship games in a row. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe the stats aren't impressive or what, but that's a pretty impressive achievement. Oh, without um, doubt, without doubt. Um, and, and he was also, Brown was also astute enough to select Marion Motley and Bill Willis, who were African-American players. Um, the, the NFL at the time was um, lily white, as they would say. They had had African-American players in the 1920s and into the 1930s, but for whatever reason, some people claim it was George Preston Marshall who who uh, pushed the owner to get rid of the African-American players. Some people think it was that during the Great Depression, the owner decided it didn't look right to keep white players from earning a living, so they got in, in and so they replaced the black players with white players, and who knows what. It's uh, I didn't find anything in the league minute that was a smoking gun on that. Um, those league minutes at the Canton Hall of Fame are somewhat useful. They're not as detailed as I would have liked, but at least they are um, primary sources, as scholars like to say. Presumably the owners are speaking candidly in the meetings. Well, but, so, but the NFL, though, right, looked at the AFC as uh, – Yes, as a challenge, but uh, arguably uh, and publicly, right, uh, uh, it didn't give it much credence, right, uh, even though they may have been uh, very curious back in the offices, right? Well, they denigrated the AFC and they, they refused to play their, their championship, their, their champion in some sort of a, a game. Um, as with other sports owners, these owners are pretty ruthless. They, they play hardball. Um, they didn't want the interlopers, and I think they they knew they were up against a fairly um, fairly strong bunch of co-owners uh, or um, adversary owners. Um, I think they took the AAFC fairly with, with a fair amount of seriousness after the initial setup and everything. I know that I think there was some sort of remark that oh they don't even have a football and ha ha, but but I think that once they saw that these people had money and they were signing players, I think they knew they were in for a no-hold-barred situation. Well, when the when the AAFC uh, uh, ended in, in 49, and obviously uh, the Cleveland Browns were uh, part of uh, that which uh, blended uh, after that into the NFL, um, maybe you can give, some, give the audience a sense of perhaps how you perceived uh, that to have occurred. Do you think that was more through uh, bobbing and weaving, I guess, or intrigue from the NFL, 
the AAFC's inability on their own to uh, to, to be as good or as solid or as uh, uh, competitive, perhaps, in the NFL. I mean, um, it, it would seem to me that there were some, um, I don't know, uh, uh, intriguing, perhaps, economic uh uh, shenanigans, perhaps, or, or other things that uh, maybe also then gave a clue to how the NFL would wind up uh, lasting and succeeding in the uh, in the decades that followed. The NFL certainly tried to retain all their star players, and they tried to prevent the AAFC from getting players. That's always been a time honored tactic, all the way back to uh, baseball, National League, and American Association, and then the American League, the Federal League, and then in the late 1950s, the abstract or the theoretical Continental League. So that's one big advantage that the incumbent owners have is usually they do have enough players under contract that they can uh, make it very difficult for the other league to get named players. Um, and, and of course, theoretically, a, a new league could rebuild through signing the free agents that are graduating every year from college, but that takes a while. Um, and it's it's unclear whether that strategy would ever have worked. Nobody's ever actually been forced to that completely. They usually consign some some well-known names. The ABA signed Rick Barry, Billy Cunningham, some of those guys. But they tried to draft. Well, they tried to sign um, Jabbar when he, he graduated. But it, it's, it's difficult to build your league up that way. On the other hand, in the aftermath of World War II, people had a lot of money in their pocket because there wasn't a lot to spend your money on during the war in terms of consumer goods. So all the Major League Baseball experienced the boom in 1946, and I think that's what incurred, uh, encouraged the AAFC owners and then the basketball um, owners in the uh, Basketball Association of America, the forerunner of the NBA, to launch their league. They thought it was a propitious time to... Uh, Stand on the market. Unfortunately for them, they may have been off a little bit because um, the the boom kind of, at least for baseball, kind of deflated by the early 1950s. So it's hard to know because there's a lot of things going on during the late 40s, early 50s. I often think the baby boom and the move to suburbia were two of the key factors that made it more difficult for these leagues to survive than they anticipated. Well, in some respects, right, the the, the merger in '49, uh, where uh, the NFL uh, took on or absorbed the uh, the Cleveland Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Colts, um, and I know there was some uh, discussion, perhaps, of also adding the Bills, which which did not happen. Um, you know, I, I'm wondering if that was more of a marriage of convenience, or the NFL actually kind of saw that you know the AFC proved some points, uh, had some football going in other markets or other places, uh, reasonably good product. Uh, great storylines uh, in, say, like the Cleveland Browns and, and Paul Brown, et cetera. Um, it almost is like they it did a little bit of their, if you will, the NFL's expansion work, given some of these uh, strengthening economic, uh, macro uh, economic uh, uh, things going on in the late 40s, uh, early 50s. Uh, or is that just a too simplistic way of looking at it? Well, the reason for the various teams joining the NFL I don't recall the details. It's been six years since I wrote the book, but my guess is that they knew the Browns were just too good to keep out. I think there would have been an outcry. I think the fans were already, and the reporters were chafing under the fact that the NFL champions refused to play the Browns. And of course, sports fans being sports fans, everyone was dying to know whether the Browns could measure up. I mean, 
they didn't have talk radio for sports as much back in the late 40s, and obviously there's no internet. But you can only imagine what ESPN would make of this. You've got this team that just kills everybody in the AFC, and you're wondering, could they match up with the NFL? And that, that question's been answered for four years. So it, it, it's got to keep a lot of people sort of itching. It's sort of the uh, the scratch that you just can't keep from itching. And so I think the Browns were almost a shoo-in to get in. San Francisco logistically made for a, a nice travel partner with the Los Angeles Rams. So now you would have two teams on the coast. And then Baltimore was kind of an add-on and not a very happy one. I if I recall, they didn't last very long before they went down. In fact, yeah, I think they lasted one season, or they they transferred them to, uh, and then they resurrected a team in Dallas, I believe it was, and that team fizzled. Um, there were these little little things going on, so I think the 49ers and the Browns were shoe ins. I don't think the other teams had as good a chance to get in because they were directly competing with some established, such as the Chicago team in the AFC was competing with two Chicago teams in the NFL. Um, there was a New York or Brooklyn, New York team that obviously the Giants didn't want them in there, and neither did the so-called New York Yankees who were also in the NFL at that time. So there are probably other reasons for those other teams to to uh, be kept out and everything. Plus, I, I suspect the owners weren't sure whether the market could handle more than 12 or 13 teams and there's logistical problems if you start getting odd numbers of teams or if you get numbers that are not multiples of four sometimes for scheduling purposes in fact they were concerned about that one year they had 13 teams and that created a lot of scheduling headaches so i think there were concerns on those scores too well it seems interesting because as the as the 50 started to come about right it seems like the nfl really started to kind of um uh, get its uh, its economic and uh, and legal act together. I mean, to the point where, um, I mean, you you would think that perhaps the floodgates might have been opened a bit uh, with the absorption of of some of the AFC. But the fifties were dominated by a very, I guess, arguably strengthening uh, National Football League, and maybe arguably uh, sets some of the tone for some of the uh, major influences or even models uh, that sort of guaranteed or sort of solidified the NFL's. Uh, uh, you know, grip, I guess, on professional football. I mean, you're kind of mentioning, you've kind of danced around sort of a little bit of, of one of them, right, which is ownership. Um, I think you might have mentioned the word clubish or clubby or whatever. Um, you know, you're talking about a, a group of well-off men, right, uh, who, you know, especially as the, as the 50s roll on, uh, you know, truly, it's a club, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, a gentleman's club, if you will. Um, that, you know, is uh, hard to break into uh, and uh, not a lot of folks within that club uh, necessarily wanting to entertain uh, the notions of perhaps some outsiders uh, to uh, the sanctity of this club and its profitability. Well, there are a couple factors, I think, that are operating, one of which is at the time, neither football league was all that popular. They got written up in the fall because um, they were playing on a day that the college team didn't, so the Monday paper would report the game. And they were building up some sort of fan interest. The uh, Once they settled down the 12 teams, the attendance goes up, but uh, 
but not dramatically. Uh, it goes up gradually throughout the decade, typically more than the previous year, but it's nothing that would take your breath away. Um, and so my guess is that the NFL, in effect, flew under the antitrust radar. Congress just really, at that point, in their, from most of the 50s, they didn't deem it very important. They certainly didn't uh, enter into the fray with the AFC and raise antitrust uh, concerns they would when the AFL comes. So that's a factor. Second of all, um, um, going back to Burt Bell, and he's certainly not the smooth, polished person, PR person that Pete Rosell will be in some of the subsequent commissioners, but he's, he's a savvy guy. I, I think that people see pictures of him and he seems sort of a jovial guy, but he's pretty, I think he's astute in many ways. Obviously, his team didn't do so well because he was a former owner, but um, he understood that they they had to accept the fact that people were going to bet on the games, so he created a system of um, spies, if you will, or a contact within the gambling community, so he knew if there was something funny going on with shifting odds or whatever, and so he said, we'll just bring it out in the open, people are gambling on the game, but we're going to try to make sure that the games and all the betters are on the same level. So there's no inside information, and that's part of the reason you see the injury list that the NFL has. And they take that pretty seriously. And that's sort of a, a legacy of the Bell bill. Now, he, he wasn't the visionary that Roosevelt was with respect to television. Um, that was probably, it was probably just as well that he moved on, or I can't remember if he died in office, but he was gone by the time they, they decided to negotiate the national contract. And we'll come back to that later because there's a couple ironies to that. But I think that um, that the league was not, at least for the first half of the 1950s, was not a huge success. I think they were growing, and I think they were, more importantly, becoming stable. They got rid of a couple franchises, and they set set the tone, and only a few years later would they move the Chicago Cardinals to St. Louis. But they were focused on stability, and they hadn't had that in the past, and I think those years in the 50s, that was what they were grateful for, and that was probably their goal, just to get some stability. Yeah, and I think that's important because I think a lot of people, uh, <clears throat> especially of a current generation, don't sort of realize how uh, still fledgling the NFL really was at that time, right? I mean, it was no doubt that that uh, America's pastimes then still was uh, baseball, uh, and also important to remember that truly baseball wasn't, uh, you know, west of the Mississippi, if you will. Uh, until, you know, the late 50s when, uh, you know, when the two uh, New York franchises bolted for the West Coast. Right. So, you know, this is still kind of it's not completely untilled uh, uh, soil, uh, but it's uh, to your point, that stability. Right. And, you know, that that ownership thing. Right. It, it, that that sort of comes back a little later. Right. Sort of scarcity. Um, uh, it's a bit, uh, I guess, arguably monopolistic, uh, especially in later years as people start to put the put the pieces together when, let's say, people like Lamar Hunt uh, look for uh, entry into uh, the league and are rebuffed. Um, but uh, it's, you know, that stability, no doubt, right? Um, I, I guess one of the things, and that's interesting about the uh, about the, 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 uh, the sort of the knowledge, I guess, of, of betting basically being uh, part of the mix and, and trying to be as transparent with information as possible. I mean, you could not... Uh, uh, you could not bring up an issue that's uh, more timely than that today, right? Given the new mores, I guess, around sort of the legal uh, ramifications of loosening or, or now more allowing 
uh, in more, more states, uh, the idea of sports betting, right, uh, in 2018. Bell had um, had to confront a, a gambling scandal in 1946, and I go into a little bit of detail on that in the book, although I, I've written an article that I haven't published, but it's, and there have been other people who have referred to it. But the 1946 championship game, a day or two prior to the game, two players on the Giants were approached by a, gam, a, a gambler who they were acquaintances with. In fact, they often partied at this um, Alvin Paris's apartment and Paris was sort of a low-level gambler who wanted to be a big shot and he um, the Bears uh, the Giants had beaten the Bears in the regular season but the Bears were now the favorites to win the championship game by 10 points and so um, Frankie Filchok was the starting quarterback for the Giants I believe he may have been an all-star either in 45 or 46 he had the interesting record of 25 interceptions and 169 attempts but most of those guys in the league weren't much better, but it was kind of stunning to see that when I first came across that. 25 interceptions in 169 attempts. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what his quarterback rating would be today, but it's got to be pretty low, right? I mean, that's an interception every seven passes. But anyway, so they were, and, and Merle Hape was the replacement um, running back. The starting running back was injured. And so they were approached and the story goes they claimed they denied it um and then somehow it got out and they were brought in and people were interrogating them the mayor of new york city shows up and interrogates both players and he comes out after he talked to the player by himself and he clears phil chalky so i think hapes is hapes is kind of uh, been turned but phil chalk he he didn't do anything wrong. So based on the mayor, now, first of all, why would the mayor be involved in a football game? I've always thought that was kind of interesting. There, there's no explanation that I can find why the mayor shows up and why the mayor takes it upon himself to, to um, investigate. So they let Phil Chalk play. And in that game, which the Giants lose by precisely 10 points, so nobody wins on the bet, um, Phil Chalk throws six interceptions. Can you imagine the furor today if a starting quarterback in a Super Bowl threw six interceptions and the news comes out that the day before he'd been uh, approached by gamblers? Well, I mean, what could go wrong, right, with with, with betting now in lots of states? I mean, you know, I, I think it's, everybody's sort of all agog about the possibilities and the revenues and all that kind of stuff. But I... You know, I don't know. I, these things are not new, right? We can go back to scandals in the, the teens in baseball and, you know, sports and gambling have not been a, uh, an always an elegant mix, right? No, no. Um, what's interesting is that all the accounts I've read of the game, the people go out of their way to say Frankie Filchok played honest, Frankie Filchok played hard. Frankie went down hard. I, there's no one that I can find who said it looks it smelled bad. It, it's just interesting to see that. Later, of course, they will suspend uh, Phil Chalk for for an indefinite time, which turns out to be life. Um, the irony is that both Hapes and Phil Chalk died, I think, within a month of each other back in the early 2000s. But they were somewhat embittered because at the time, I don't believe the NFL had um, an anti-gambling rule on the books. And it takes them a little bit of time to actually put that in there their code of conduct. Um, similar to Major League Baseball, surprisingly, after the 1919 World Series, it took the owners a few years to actually make it explicit that you couldn't um, 
be approached, and if you were approached, if you didn't report it, you were out. Um, and even in the basketball scandals, sometimes it was difficult to know what to charge the players with because it wasn't obvious that it was a crime. Well, but there were some other, though, uh, centrally uh, agreed upon um, uh, solidifications, I guess, of things, right? I, I, you know, the idea of uh, of, uh, of parity, right? A competitive balance uh, of teams, right? That seems to be something that kind of um, took root uh, in the 50s uh, amongst the ownership, right? I guess a, a belief, whether betting related or, or just general uh, interest in entertainment uh, value otherwise, uh, the idea of having a competitive league where, quote unquote, on any given Sunday, right? Um, clearly, the beginnings of understanding that uh, the product uh, needs to be appealing on a week in, week out kind of basis and, and perhaps uh, not, uh, uh, you know, too much uh, led by, you know, dominant teams and, and very weak ones. That is one of the great slogans in sports, isn't it? On any given Sunday, it, it's pithy and it conveys exactly the message they want. But in reality, there were such teams as the Chicago Cardinals that year in, year out, they were mediocre at best. They were aspiring to mediocrity, and they usually didn't succeed. And and even when they got relocated to St. Louis, that didn't really help them. In the 30s, I believe Bell and one of the other owners um, implored the other owner to create a reverse order draft of the college player and the amateur players in the hope that that would uh, help redress the competitive imbalance because Bell said, we just simply can't compete with New York, Chicago. And I believe, I think Green Bay was still pretty good then. Of course, they go into a decline after the war. And there's actually talk that they shouldn't be in Green Bay anymore um, and everything. So they do create a draft and then... uh, uh, some of the tables in the book show it's pretty dubious that the draft had any real positive effect on so-called competitive balance. In the early drafts, I believe a majority of the players didn't even sign with the NFL. Uh, the, the pay was so low that a lot of people just went into industry, something that the NBA will find to its chagrin in the late 40s, early 50s. These sports leagues, some of them were such shoestring um, operations that they just simply couldn't pay the players enough to entice them out of private industry or semi-pro teams. Um, some of the basketball players would join Phillips 66 and some of these other teams. They'd have a regular job, but they'd get paid a pretty nice salary, and then they'd go out and play basketball on the weekends and some of the evenings. Um, so it's years before the NFL owners can guarantee a salary for a rookie player that will automatically get them to think about the NFL instead of industry. Today, of course, I don't know if there's very many first-round players, at least, who would snub their nose at an NFL con- being drafted in the first round. The other thing about the NFL draft is, at this point in time, my guess is some of your more rabid, enthusiastic fans have spent more time scouting the players than these owners and their coaches did all the way into the 1950s. Um, and the story I like to to uh, think about is um, the Steelers, I believe it was, had the first... Um, special pick. What the owner decided was that they didn't like the reverse order draft, so starting in, I think, 46, they had a lottery, so each year, they'd pick a name out of the hat, and regardless of that team's record, they'd get the number one pick overall, (laughs) which sort of, you know, sort of defeats the purpose of the 
of the draft. So Pittsburgh got their turn, and they promptly draft quarterback Gary Glick. I think he was from Colorado or somewhere. And he didn't do very well. And I believe either the coach or the owner laments, that's the last time I'll ever draft a player without seeing him play. Can you imagine that today? Heads would roll. I mean, people get fired if they hadn't scouted these players. I mean, my goodness, look at the NFL Combine. Those people are scrutinized. But it, but this this is the time though this this era of the fifties right when the when Bell and 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 the group you know really did sort of you know, put some rhyme or reason around this idea of a draft right even if it wasn't uh, necessarily to uh, attract college stars to high paying salaries just yet right at least it was uh, a process right a a well thought out process to uh, you know have some rules and regulations around how to stock. Uh, teams, right? And and we, we could also, you know, I guess allude to a bit of sort of like what there was of any uh, minor league system, right? To to help develop and 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 provide players for the for the teams going forward. But in, in many respects, this is a the draft in particular, a foundational element, right, to nurture and sustain uh the, the league going forward, right? Without a, a pipeline and a and a relatively uh decently defined pipeline of talent. Um, you know, wither the league, right? Because the, the talent's what the, what people come to see. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, there, there's no question. Eventually, they became much more sophisticated about the uh, the draft. Uh, there was some quote from somebody that said these coaches would come with rolls of dimes and quarters, and they'd go out to the payphone and they'd call their buddies in the coaching ranks of of colleges. And, and one guy said something to the effect, "Hey, Pappy, some coach named Pappy, do you know any good?" Uh, offensive lineman this year. <laughs> I mean, it just seated the pants. Um, but by the early 50s, a couple of the teams are beginning to invest in a scouting system. But you, you have to remember, Major League Baseball for many years, it was pretty informal how they, they found players. So I think this is just the way it sort of works. And the NBA is the same thing. Red Arbach admits that he drafted uh, shooting guard Sam Jones on the say-so friend of his from college. Okay, so you ought to look at this uh, draft this Sam Jones guy. So he spends a, a first round pick on Sam Jones, never saw the guy play, didn't know anything about him, just on the say so of somebody. So I think these leagues require sort of a learning curve to start realizing, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Even if it doesn't affect the competitive balance of we're in a small market team, if we draft really good players, we can sell them and the owner makes profit that way. Some of these owners could make profits even though their teams weren't very good. But it does sound like, uh, and uh, maybe we should segue into this other uh, next area of of gate sharing, right? It, it does sound like there's some elements uh, of what I would call, uh, for lack of a better term, collectivism. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, well, they right, yeah, yeah. Well, let's segue into our uh, revenue sharing. The NFL, especially in the '70s and '80s, loved to brag about how they had much more generous revenue sharing than Major League Baseball did. But part of the Part of that was um, an exaggeration because the 60-40 rule was not quite what it seemed in the sense that the owners, the home team, got to skim off 15% for the expenses of staging the game. So that leaves you 85%. Then the league got, I believe it was a 2 or 3% cut of that. And then the visiting team got 40% of what was left. So it effectively, it was only 33%. Now, that was roughly double the share that Major League Baseball was exchanging between teams. The kicker, though, was the attendance pattern differed between the two sports. 
in baseball, there was a pronounced effect upon the road team win-loss record. So if the Yankees came, they typically brought the biggest crowd that the Browns would see that season. And so, and the Dodgers and the Giants, uh, well, the Giants to less degree, but the Brooklyn Dodgers were every bit of strong and draw on the road at the Yankees. So in baseball, it wasn't the generosity or lack of, it was the attendance pattern. And so by the end of the of the 60s, or excuse me, the end of the 50s, the Yankees drew so many more fans on the road that they were net beneficiaries from the revenue sharing. And one season, they had enough from revenue sharing that they could have paid the salaries of Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, and Roger Maris from the gate share. So not only are the weak teams in the American League losing, they're subsidizing the Yankees. Football, it's not as pronounced that the winning team bring the biggest crowds, oftentimes because there's a preponderance of season ticket holders. So once you buy a season ticket, doesn't matter who comes, you're probably just going to go, even if it's a crappy team, because there's only six games in, in the home schedule. So you don't get quite that effect. The other thing in the NFL was that they had a clause saying that if you didn't draw, or if the gate share wasn't, I believe it was $20,000, you had to make up the difference. And so the Chicago Cardinals, who were, as I've already alluded to, not a very good team, and they never drew well, oftentimes had to make up the difference. So in effect, they're paying out more than 33% to the visiting teams, even though they're one of the weakest teams in the league. So they had some punitive things built in, but that's partly because I think the owners were afraid of what economists call moral hazard, that some of these owners would just let their teams slide and not pay a lot of salary and have a crappy team and then depend on getting big gates when the glamour teams came. And baseball owners were frequently complaining about the St. Louis Brown doing stuff like that. So I think that's why the NFL had that. But that made their gate sharing much less effective than the National League or the, the American League. If baseball had doubled their proportion to be similar to the NFL, it just would have made the Yankees and the Dodgers that much better off. So the gate sharing thing is actually far more subtle than what most people realize. All right, we're going to take a little brief detour, a little pause here for the cause. And that cause, of course, is to, you know, keep our lights on. Uh, and we appreciate you uh, thinking and considering our uh, our sponsors, including our uh, relatively new sponsors, MyBookie. MyBookie is uh, at mybookie.ag. Uh, and they are uh, indeed probably the best place uh, to get your uh, wagers in uh, for the uh, burgeoning uh, pro football season that, uh, that is now upon us. Uh, as well as just about every sport under the sun. Uh, and uh, these guys are uh, probably the best in the business and have been very successful over the years. You probably have heard them in other uh, podcasts being advertised as a good reason because my bookie uh, is the best place for uh, in-game, live betting, over-unders, uh, fantasy points uh, for uh, fantasy uh, setups and games. Uh, you name it, uh, my bookie is uh, is on it and uh, arguably the uh, the best ones out there for your uh, your wagering needs. And that's uh, MyBookie. If you go to MyBookie.ag, and of course, we've got you covered with some goodies. Uh, use the promo code SEATS uh, to get uh, your uh, initial deposit matched dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. That's right. You're basically getting uh, a thousand dollar credit uh, if you put that much in uh, when you open up your account at MyBookie, MyBookie.ag. Make sure you make sure, he says, 
uh, to use that code SEATS uh, to do so. And as an extra added bonus, if uh, you do so after 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, because they are so uh, booked during the course of the day with uh, uh, new uh, uh, new entrants. If you can wait till after 7 p.m. Eastern Time, they'll give you an additional $25 of free play on any deposit over $100. Just make sure that when you enter the promo code SEATS, you add the number 25 to that. So SEATS25 will ensure not only do you get the dollar for dollar match up to $1,000 for your initial deposit, but you're also going to get an extra 25 bucks uh, for uh, any deposit that happens to be over $100. So it's basically a thousand bucks for the match and 25 bucks essentially for uh, any uh, deposit that's $100 or over. So in in no way, shape or form are you going to lose by setting up an account. Uh, you're getting free stuff and free credit from my bookie. And again, make sure you use that promo code SEATS25 again after seven o'clock Eastern time to get that extra $25 uh, kicker, if you will. Uh, into uh, your bonus uh, setup from my bookie. That's mybookie.ag. And uh, we uh, thank them and you uh, for uh, giving some support to our little show here. All right, right now, let's move on to uh, the next part of our conversation. So I, I think it's very interesting, that little sort of anecdote about sort of the Chicago Cardinals, right, vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, say, the St. Louis Browns of baseball, right? The the temptation, I guess, right? You're in the club, right? You you, you own a team, right? And, and you're part of the mix. And, uh, you know, you've kind of sort of reached that summit. So it almost feels like uh, sort of warring tensions, I guess. There's almost a, 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 yeah, you want to sort of stay in that club, right? And, and that requires at least some some level of basic economic uh, nurturing and and uh, and nourishment uh, to keep uh, the team and the players and whatever. But however, uh, there also seems to be almost a, a seemingly uh, uh, equal uh, disincentive, right, to sort of uh, not sort of go too deep on growing the talent because you're already in the shadow of of a bigger, more popular franchise in your own city. And to your point, uh, there should be enough meat on the uh, schedule bone, shall we say? Uh, that uh, some of the better teams uh, with their draws will sort of uh, make it economically uh, uh, just fine uh, without sort of too much uh, extra added investment. Right. That that was sort of, um, that's always been kind of a bugaboo. I tell my students in sports economics, what you buy when you buy a major league team in any of the leagues is a package of property rights. Essentially, that's what you're buying. And one of those property rights, say in baseball, is that the New York Yankees will come to your stadium a certain number of times in the season. And I said, well, you could be an owner who just strips your team of all true major league talent and then creates a literal, no, I won't call it fantasy baseball, but a little literal thing where the Billy Crystals of the world who love baseball might even play it in high school, maybe even in college. And they'll pay you to play on your team, the Hollywood Stars versus these other teams. Now, obviously, that's making a travesty and a mockery of the game. but And that's why the major leagues have sort of bottom limits for salary. You have to pay a certain amount per player. They have the minimum salary. And I believe in the revenue sharing thing, you have to spend so much money on salaries. So, therefore, that kind of shuts the door on the Hollywood Stars because um, that's not going to be feasible. Um, the NFL owners, I think, have belied – 
their um, their motivation for the revenue sharing because they typically do not share the luxury box revenues. And then that, that's one of the big attractions of building stadiums with a lot of luxury boxes is that they don't have to share that money outside the basic ticket price. But of course, the basic ticket price on a luxury box is just a pittance of the total ticket price. So um, that's why you saw that move that they actually, some of them went to smaller stadiums they had, they, that were ringed with luxury boxes and everything. So gate sharing, I think, um, is motivated not just or maybe not even by the um, willingness to help the weak, weak links. I think it's, you could also turn it around and say it's the way for the New York Yankees to get something because they bring a quality product to all the teams. So they should be rewarded for that. And that's a reasonable argument. Um, but they don't like to state that in public. I don't think you'll get any of the owners to say that in public. As an economist by trade, as you dug into uh, the, the writings and the uh, – and the um the evolution of the league in the 50s uh, and, and obviously preceded by the AFC and, and the, NF, the AFL afterwards. Um, what was your what is your sense economically, I guess, uh, of the of ownership? Right. Are, are, do, you, do you feel like there was is there this tension between sort of we need to have some level of uh, of uh, collectivism, um, again, my word, uh, or, you know, is this uh, owners really kind of independently trying to seek their own maximization of profit because they own their own uh, arguably monopolistic franchises in in, in a very small uh, cabal known as the NFL. It seems like they're, and I, I it's kind of a loaded question because I've heard and seen uh, and we've discussed this sort of uh, uh, this tension uh, in, in many different scenarios, both uh, old time sports and, and relatively new is this sort of, I guess waxing and waning between what does one do with a league collectively for everybody's benefit versus how can I, as my own franchise owner, maximize my own profits to the best of my ability and the others can't sort of do that on their own uh, for themselves? Well, so be it. Well, there's a wonderful quote. I don't have it on hand. I've, I've got the, the book here. Let's see if it's in the book. No, it's uh around 1900 when the National League was beginning to fragment sure. and the and some of the owners backed what was called syndicate baseball where all the owners would own all the teams they they would um, allocate players centrally and the idea probably was that the teams in New York would get the best players over time because they were the best draws and if you think about that that would be the rational thing to do and then by chance with injuries or somebody having a surprisingly good season the St. Louis's might rise up a little bit kind of like Kansas City Royal did a couple years back um, but the owner said this is a cutthroat competitive business we compete for players we compete for games and everything else and if we didn't do that, it, there, there wouldn't be any league. That's the whole essence is that we're competing for these things. But yet he realized there still had to be that, that fundamental core of cooperation. So that was sort of the paradox. They had to cooperate on rules. They had to cooperate on schedules. They had to cooperate on some other things. So I, I think the savvy owners understood that they were sort of um, what I like to call, in this case of the NFL, sort of a 12-headed hydra. 
yeah, the heads were snapping at each other, but they are all connected. One dies, the other is sickened in a type of a situation. So I don't think they ever lost sight of that. I think that Bell and a lot of the owners from the 30s and 40s, they knew each other, maybe circulated sort of the same uh, social economic culture. Many of them, I believe, were Irish Catholic. I think one of them uh, made the remark that we were a bunch of Irish Catholics, and a person's handshake was pretty much their word. And obviously today, that's you have a diverse cast of owners, and you have many more. But I think they were able to kind of keep that competitiveness within bounds. And occasionally, occasionally they would help somebody, even though they didn't have to, because they knew that if somebody... If they lost a franchise, it looked bad, and second of all, it created a lot of problems for other people. Um, I know that some people don't characterize it as a symbiotic relationship, but the New York Yankees needed the St. Louis Browns. Yeah, you got to beat somebody. Yeah, the old uh, "you're only as strong as your weakest link" theory, right? So, um, all right, so let's 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 skate a little bit into television, right? Because um, you know, at the beginning of the uh, of the decade, right, TV was. Uh, truly in its infancy and was was hardly the force that it was by decades end i mean the AAF, the aafc probably had a few you know maybe sort of uh, uh, demonstration games on the dumont network or whatever but uh, this is a decade where uh the idea of television as a window on the world of sports uh, among other things uh really kind of got its grip right i mean the meteoric rise of the medium um, maybe you can kind of give us uh, some sense of how the NFL, over a dramatically uh, changing 10 years or so, kind of went from, you know, sort of uh, uh, the earliest sort of proto uh, business model to what effectively was a fairly decent head of steam heading into the 1960s on television. Well, hearkening back to the 1920s with radio, um, I believe radio broadcast of college football was more prevalent than the pros. First of all, again, pros weren't very popular. Baseball owners proved very wary of the new medium. They were dependent primarily on gate receipts, and they were worried that radio broadcast of the game would prove too good a substitute and people would just stay home, which to me reveals a lot of insecurity because any baseball fan would tell you that listening to a baseball game is not a very good substitute for attending the game in person. It's, it's, you're only engaging one of your five senses. Football, I suppose, because there's interruption in the play, it gives the announcer, well, I guess baseball does too, but maybe football would have been better on the radio than baseball, but uh, obviously once they got better technology in, in television, uh, football was a much more intelligent game than baseball. I don't think that there's any question of that in most people's mind. But the owners, after World War II, the baseball owners decided, well, we survived radio. They started paying us for it. So we'll just start televising our game. But many of the teams retrenched by the 1950s. It wasn't clear whether television was going to be friend or foe um, and everything. Television thrived on such things as wrestling, roller derby, because those were games that you could have close-ups. They were in a very confined space, and you could see the players or the participants very well. Uh, the outdoor sports were a little more difficult because the cameras weren't that good and they didn't have the instant replay. You don't have color. It, it's not a very good substitute still for attending the game, but you do have sight and sound at least, so you get two of the senses. Football's television revenue gradually grew over the 50s. It was a, a nice auxiliary source of revenue and everything, but they were still very incumbent upon the gate revenues on that. 
because of that and because the New York team didn't always have a particularly large contract relative to the others, when they broached the idea of a national contract with equal sharing, that really didn't ruffle anybody's feathers. In fact, initially, they had a stipulation that if somebody lost out because of this deal, the other team would compensate them. So they made sure nobody would lose from the national television contract, whereas in baseball, the Yankees made so much more than their American League brethren. The idea of equal sharers meant that the Yankees were going to have to cough up a lot of money. So you got a team that has obvious reason to stonewall that. Football didn't seem to have that optical. Uh, now, there's an, an irony to this in that um, the National Basketball Association in the mid-50s did negotiate a national contract. And nobody cared and didn't incite much comment. And the owners were so worried about it that they put their worst games on there. They even admitted they put their worst games on the national telecast because they were so afraid of the medium. Football, um, I'm sorry, they, I think, were, afraid, they were afraid of the medium uh, taking hurting their home game. Going to the games and attending. Okay. Yeah, people would just stay at home because – Basketball play in the winter, and it's probably inconvenient on many winter nights in the northeast quadrant of the of the country to trape to the uh, stadium. Even even though it's it, it's a it's an advertisement for the game, right? And if you're having two of the worst teams on television, it's it's actually a bad advertisement for actually coming to the game. But okay, sure. Yeah, no, I, I mean you and I find that whole idea absurd, but that's how much the owners were were worried about. And and you can't blame them because anything that could possibly hurt their gate attendance was a real problem. Those basketball owners were eking by. And some of the football owners in the 50s were eking by. I mean, some of them were doing pretty well, but some of them, I don't know, I think they were probably a little suspicious. And, of course, you have the legend of that championship game, what was it, the Coats and um, the, the Giants? In uh, that the televised Jets, game, the greatest uh, game of the, the Heidi century. Game. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, and so supposedly that was what turned the corner for not only the NFL, but the NFL on television. But the irony is that when the AFL um, began to organize, they got a national contract that I believe paid about $250,000 per team, which was pretty big money back then. It's quite possible that that money enabled the AFL to survive the first few seasons. The NFL wanted that kind of a contract, but they knew that they would trigger antitrust implications and so Pete Rosell went before Congress to get that. The irony is that if Congress had said, no, that's a violation of antitrust, the NFL may well have watched the AFL disappear. Yeah, very interesting because uh, that, that's, it's, it's hard not to talk about television and the NFL um, without the AFL in 1960, right, uh, kind of coming onto the scene and, and – and, in many respects, a very, uh, I think, brilliant move. Now, luck or prescience, don't know. Um, I suspect a little of both, right? Uh, that uh, knowing that, and we've seen it again, even with the USFL and, and other other leagues of all kinds, that uh, that television, you know, if you have a, a contract ahead of time that gives you at least a little leeway uh, and some cash in the door, right, that's, uh, it's, it's advertisement for your product uh, and it, uh, it guarantees sampling. And then, in many respects, it, it guarantees uh, at least a look that uh, might uh, then translate into consideration that's actually going to the games. But it, it's it's pretty clear to me that the AFL studied long and hard uh, the uh, the decade of the 50s and the NFL and what it was and wasn't doing. 
And then recognized that uh, not only was TV uh, a major force uh, going into the uh, the 1960s, but uh, an essential component if they were even to get off the ground. I think that's correct. Um, my understanding is that Lamar Hunt, who was one of the prospective owners, got turned down several times. But since he was a, perfect, a prospective owner, he and some of the other later AFL owners got a chance to look at the NFL books. And the story is, is after being rebuffed, he's on an on a jetliner, and he takes out a napkin, and he jots down some numbers so he can kind of get a rough idea of what it's going to take to make this viable. And then, of course, they go out and get the television contract before they ever play a game. He, to my mind, is one of the great sports, great sports executives because he brought in all eight teams. Nobody, nobody went under, and he brought in all eight teams to parity with the NFL. Just the only other person that did that in American team sports was Van Johnson with the American League. He brought in all of his eight teams. Nobody voted. He brought them all in. And that's a pretty stunning achievement because the incumbents have a lot of advantages. It's hard to unseat an incumbent uh, professional sports league. They've got the players. They've got the names. They've got the stadiums. They've got the goodwill of the public in most cases. It's hard to surmount that. Hunt did it. It was a rocky road, but, but they succeeded. The other irony, of course, was that before they get the merger approved, both leagues are suing each other for various reasons, mostly antitrust. And then when they seek the merger, some of the legislators were astute enough to say, well, wait a minute, you were just previously suing each other for what you want now. But then the the legislators kind of signed off on it. But uh, it was interesting that some people at least recognized the inconsistency of what was going on. It, it was... It, it 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 is kind of amusing in a way to think that these owners could just do a, an about face and argue against what they or argue for what they were against all those years. Well, let let's talk about the antitrust and and <clears throat> the, uh, the the idea of the reserve uh, clause uh, to some extent and and, and uh, player contracts and all that kind of stuff because talk about perhaps the most major dominant and persistent theme that we've uh, we found in this year and a half of doing these shows. Right, uh, it seems to come back. Uh, in various forms and shapes, but uh, the fundamentals um, don't seem to change. Um, I, I do want to maybe get into how the NFL sort of danced around some of these charges of of, of antitrust, uh, and um, you know maybe a little bit of a a layman's understanding of sort of the whole idea of why that matters uh, in professional sports, uh, in particular the NFL. The background was that. In the wake of the Federal League challenging the Major League back in 1914-15, um, one of the teams, when they did come to an agreement and they absorbed some of the players and they exchanged some ownerships, but the Baltimore franchise of the Federal League was dissatisfied with both the Federal League and the Major League and took it to court and eventually went up to the Supreme Court. And in a famous ruling, they said that uh, baseball was not uh, interstate commerce. Some uh, legal scholars think that that's just a crazy ruling, although um, they had ruled similarly in a previous baseball case, and they also had ruled similarly with respect to touring theater groups, which in some ways had similar characteristics. So the other baseball gets this antitrust exemption, which even though they have it, the owners are always a little bit leery about testing it in court. So after World War II, when some of the owners jumped contract or some of the players jumped contract and they started suing, usually the owners would settle with them. So it didn't actually go all the way to the court case. Although in one case, the 
the judges upheld the owner, but they also mentioned that it was bad law from before. And if they were to, if this was a fresh case, they would have ruled against the owner, which seemed kind of weird to most of us, but that was how the legal mind worked. So the NFL and the NBA and the NHL sought to get the same protection from Congress. They weren't going to get it to the courts, probably. So they went to Congress to say, hey, look, these people running essentially the same kind of organization, they have antitrust exemption. We would like to have that. And we're even willing to specify where we want it so it's not a carte blanche. And so um, the reserve clause, the territorial protection, the reverse order draft, and there were a couple other things were what and were what they wanted. And then later they amended it that they also wanted national television contracts. Uh, eventually they sort of get get these things. So it's not an antitrust exemption in a sense, but it's sort of an okay that you can do this because you've been doing it for a while and Congress does not want to incur the wrath of the voters by possibly screwing the leagues up by saying you can't do that anymore. Congress is kind of hesitant and the courts are too. But they know how popular sports are. And if something were to go wrong because of a legal ruling, well, heaven help the legislator or judge. So this is an ongoing thing. The NFL's owners envied the baseball owners for their antitrust exemption. And so they will go there. With respect to the reserve clause and the reverse order draft, they will, as the baseball owners argue, that it promotes competitive balance. But uh, that just that's just risible. It, it doesn't seem to do it that much. Um, There's a couple of famous papers in economics written by some economists to sort of pointed out that uh, if you had free agency or if you had the reserve clause, the distribution of, of playing talent, not the actual player necessarily, but would be pretty similar under both. Now, what would differ would be who would get the benefits. But um, the idea is that, so let's use Otto Graham, for example. So Paul Brown signed them as a free agent. Brown um, presumably is under the reserve clause and um, since he's so good, maybe a New York team would want him because they can draw more people than than the Cleveland team. So they could cut a deal. And then the owner would share the benefits. On the other hand, if it was free agency and Brown was more valuable to New York, then he could just sign for more money for himself from New York. So in either case, in this scenario, Brown would gravitate towards New York. And so then obviously there's some subtleties here. But the idea is that it really shouldn't make much difference in the competitive balance, whether you have free agency or the reserve clause. It does affect the distribution of the gain from having that player special talent. And I'm sure that just clears mud for your, your audience. No, no, that, I, it, it makes that's sense. sort of the shorthand way of thinking about it. No, that makes sense. But I guess it, it, with with all that sort of, I guess, desired emulation of baseball in that regard by the football guys, right? Um why wouldn't they go that extra mile and try to replicate a minor league system similar to that of baseball, uh, i.e. depending on, I guess, this, uh, I guess, maturing college draft thing as their only conduit for for player stuff, right? Because in the 50s and actually for, for frankly, still, to, you know, through through today's modern times, there, you know, there, there were some minor league football, uh, you know, uh, circuits out there, but but very ragtag and not sort of professionally aligned by any stretch. Uh, with the the mighty NFL. Well, you've touched on a on a question that an academic I, I think of often. I'm a 
I enjoy college sports. I, I won't deny that. As an alumnus of the University of Oregon, it was kind of fun to watch them on their Chip Kelly rise to prominence and then the decline. But frankly, I don't really believe that these uh, quasi-professional sports belong in college. I, I think they detract from the academics. I think they, there's an overemphasis. I think it leads to a lot of corruption and so on. So I would be all in favor that those leagues just finance their own minor leagues like the baseball and the hockey owners do. Um, you know, why, why would the NFL and the NBA invest more money in that? Now, the NBA has. They get the development league, but they've got a pretty good thing going. These colleges are training these players, and they're sort of screening the players so you can get an idea of who's a good player and who's not. And uh, it's a pretty sweet deal for the NFL and the NBA <laughs> Um, until, but I, I, however, I, until until somebody recognizes that there's money to be made, and why give that money to the NCAA when perhaps those dollars could be brought into the league and 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 be a revenue stream or enhancer, right? With their own sort of uh, arguably might maybe why the the D League or now the G League uh, for the for the NBA. But I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people who would sort of believe that you know the, the college game, at least in those two sports, right, is. Uh, it's, it's become kind of a mockery in its own business in and of itself. You, you have to think, you know, while betting might solve a couple of, uh, you know, years of, of, of revenue growth, I mean, you have to think that the ultimate next level, right, is to maybe abscond, abscond, to, to absorb or siphon uh, some of those dollars that uh, college gets now with perhaps their own sort of uh, minor leagues and or feeder leagues. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a great deal of debate on whether that would be desirable. I know there will be other academics who will argue, well, it gives our school recognition. They get the donors to cough up some money, and maybe the school even makes some money off their athletic program, but giving the vagaries of uh, athletic accounting, both at the college and the professional level, it's, it, it's very difficult to know whether they, they're losing or gaining. It depends on the context, I suppose. Um, I mean, and I always often joke uh, one thing you learn in doing looking at the economics of professional sports teams and collegiate teams for that matter is beware of false profits not profits but profits because the people can tell whatever story they want um, and they can do so legally I mean there, there's some discretion in how you allocate these things but um, yeah I don't see any movement toward that um, given some of the ugly things that have happened in some of the college sports football program, nobody pulled the plug on them. So right. I think the colleges are at least the Power Five conferences right now, they're they're satisfied with the status quo. So is that another way of saying there was there's actually sort of this uh, growing disincentive for the NFL to even uh, consider or nurture or even give support to some of these minor league uh, football leagues uh, that were sort of popping up around the country? during that time? Well, my guess is they may be giving some informally or clandestinely. Uh, I'm not sure they're necessarily leaving them out to dry. I know in the 40s and 50s, from time to time, they did talk about subsidizing some of these semi-pro teams. Uh, there was a very vibrant semi-pro or, well, I guess you could call it a professional football league on the West Coast during before and during World War II. Such notables as Jackie Robinson, Woody Strode, Kenny Washington, they were playing in that, and they were big draws. In fact, those teams, uh, 
highlighted the fact that they had these great African-American football players on their team. They, they were on the cover of the programs and, and whatnot. So it, it's, it's entirely possible, I suppose, that such mid-level teams as a Toledo or a Columbus or a Portland, Oregon, they could sustain some sort of minor league team just as baseball does. But uh, I, I just don't, at this point, I don't see there's any impetus towards that. All right, so let's uh, let's let's round the corner here and and maybe sort of uh, uh, end generally here with sort of uh, the rise at the end of the decade of the idea and then the actual launch of the American Football League in in 1960. Right. So given all of these things that the NFL was uh, getting better at, right, and solidifying and putting structure around and professionalizing uh, in. Um, Give us a sense of why then the seeds, where are the seeds of the AFL's creation coming from then? Um, because, you know, innovation, uh, markets that, uh, you know, uh, could support perhaps a professional team, but was being uh, held back, if you will, by uh, by conservatism. Uh, was it, uh, I mean, how do you think, aside from the being rebuffed, uh, Lamar Hunt and a few others, from from trying to create their own, uh, uh, get their own uh, franchises in the NFL. Why? Why the AFL sort of rises as a challenger league, given what I would argue is some stability around the NFL at that time? One of the key issues that um, recurred in these congressional hearings, and I think might have been one of the motivation for legislators to hold them with the continuous cry for more teams because more cities aspired to major league status. Now, it was pretty obvious that Los Angeles and San Francisco had the population basis to be major league, whatever that means, but to have that cachet. And, of course, football was the first to capture that, but that's partly because football is a once-a-week game, so they could play the Sunday game and even take the train out and ride by Tuesday. And no muss, no fuss. Baseball was a little more difficult because they played so many games during the week that uh, you had to be real careful how you could finesse that. And the owner of the Browns actually figured out how to do that and asked permission to move at the December 1941 meeting. But then the next day, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Too bad for him um, and everything. But during the 40s and the 50s, there were a lot of cities in the South and the West that were growing. And they were beginning to catch up with those cities in the northeast quadrant. In fact, some of those cities in the northeast quadrant were dramatically losing population. Detroit, um, I believe Chicago lost a fair number of people. I think they went from 3 million down to 2 million before bouncing back. So it was pretty obvious that some of these teams were viable. Some of these cities were, excuse me, were viable. And their citizens clamored for teams. Now, if you're a legislator, you can imagine the glory and the goodwill that you'll get if you can track the team to your for your constituents. And so I think that was a major motivation for a lot of these people sitting on those committees is, well, why doesn't uh, Miami or why doesn't uh, Kansas City or Houston or Dallas, those are certainly burgeoning cities in the 50s, and they will become some of the biggest cities by the end of the century. So I think there was that impetus that there weren't enough teams that were – up to 1960, there were 16 baseball teams, eight NBA teams, 12 NFL teams, and a handful of hockey teams. So that just wasn't enough for a coast-to-coast nation with a growing population. I think the owners then were confronted with either expanding against their will or facing 
some sort of nascent league in the AFL. Had eight franchises, and uh, they were challenging him. And, and do you I think th- it was probably inevitable. Right, and as we sort of t- t- began the conversation, right, it almost feels like, and I think you almost sort of a, a, a sort of allude to sort of kind of a, a, a thematic that's uh, applicable in other uh, lines of work besides professional sports, right? Uh, a challenger of significance uh, and well-funded and uh, and vision uh, rules changes and approaches to integration and uh, television and all that kind of stuff with the AFL, right? Forces the incumbent to move a lot faster, uh, whether they want to or not, uh, versus, say, doing it uh, on their own without any uh, competition from the outside. Is that a fair framing of the AFL's arrival? Yeah, probably pretty pretty accurate. I, I mean, I, I think the owners in the NFL were just sort of dragging their feet on expansion, and there were certainly perceived disadvantages for 12 teams is a convenient number. And the next convenient number is 16. 14, not particularly convenient, because then you got seven in a division, and then that might create scheduling problems. And as I've already mentioned, having an odd number of teams, because at the time they didn't think about bye weeks. That's relatively recent that you have the bye weeks built into the schedule. So I think to some degree it was their conservatism, but I think it was also the fact that it was somewhat difficult to envision adding some extra team without a lot of um, inconvenience and you lose some of your, your, um, your power in the league. Now there's 13 people voting, not 12 and, and so on. And now we get a national TV, we're splitting it 13 ways instead of 12. Now the NFL will respond to the AFL by putting a team in Dallas because uh, one of the AFL owners had a team in Dallas. So the NFL did respond. So for a while they had 13 teams, which did create a certain amount of consternation. And of course that was the, the Dallas team that went all in 11. They weren't America's team at that point. Um, they, they just weren't very good. But uh, but that's how they responded. And it it's kind of kind of interesting to see that they kind of dragged the hills. Now, they could have taken a card from a page from baseball. Baseball defeated the Continental League by agreeing before the congressional people that they would expand in the near future. And what did that entail? Well, the Washington Senators wanted to move to Minneapolis, and so the American League owner decided, well, we'll just put a replacement team in Washington. Bad move. The American League wanted to put, another, uh, put a team of their own in Los Angeles because the Dodgers were doing so well. The National League decided to put a new team in to New York because the Mets and the Dodgers were gone. And really, the only accretion aside from the team that relocated were the Houston Astros. So baseball kind of goofed around, and the American League, of course, uh, they're a case study in an inept expansion. So they, they get those two teams. In 69, they expand Seattle and Kansas City, and then within a season, Kansas City, excuse me, Seattle is such a flop, they move them to Milwaukee. And then later in the next round, they they put another team in Seattle and stuff. I mean, it's just a, a case lesson on how not to expand. So the NFL does expand by one team in uh, in that 1960 season, and then I believe in the next season they added they added one more team, so they had an even number looking at the schedule. But they were drag pretty much drag kicking and 
and screaming, so to speak, to, towards expansion. They just simply really didn't want to do it. As you alluded, it's a clubby bunch. And maybe they felt threatened by new people, especially new people with a lot more money than they had, because a lot of those owners in the NFL, they weren't the billionaires of the day, relatively speaking. Whereas some of the AFL owners, they were, well, they were the cliche. They were Texas oil men. In fact, the reporters said that quite often, Texas oil men. And in the 50s and 60s, of course, that just conjured up what today would be um, Silicon Valley owners or dot-com owners, but these were Texas oil men, so they had deep pockets. And so um, it was a real threat. Yeah, it does, and it doesn't seem, uh, and as we sort of wrap up our, our chat here, I, it, this, it, it doesn't seem like there's any shortage uh, of folks that uh, continue wanting to uh, step up uh, and, uh, and play professional football as well, right? The NFL, uh, since this time, right, has uh, rebuffed many or a number of challenges, uh, USFL supreme among them, right? But, uh, you know, uh, so, some other attempts as well. And and now, look, we've got two other leagues that are actually getting going in the next uh, two years uh, success uh, successively. Uh, the uh, uh, Association of uh, the Alliance of American Football and the XFL 2.0. Um, why do you think so? I, I guess two two sort of final questions. One, what is it about the NFL and professional football that is so alluring that perhaps uh, what we've just kind of discussed uh, got them to this point. And then two, why do we continue to see uh, interest in uh, in pursuing uh, professional football in some flavor, shape, or form? Um, is the pie that big and still potentially expansive uh, for others to play and to enter? Or um, you know, are there some lessons from uh, the fifties and, and onward in the NFL's background that, uh, portend, uh, doom to these, uh, these new two cha- challenger leagues. Well, the obvious asset that the NFL has is the game itself, right? I mean, I'm not a big football fan, but if there's a game on television, I will inevitably watch for at least a few plays because it's such a spectacle. Uh, where else can you see people create such mayhem? If this was out on the streets, they'd all be hauled off to the, to the jailhouse, right? I mean, you can't run into somebody doing sprinter speed and you weigh 250 pounds and you can't knock somebody down on the street. Where else can you see this kind of violence? Um, It's such a dramatic game. And, of course, we love the Hail Mary passes, the the interceptions and whatnot. It's just just tailored made for uh, for television. I think of all the major sports, it's probably the best one. Um, Maybe basketball comes close, but it's just a mesmerizing game to watch. And I say that as somebody who doesn't particularly like the NFL and the way they run things, but I admit their games are compelling. I don't know if you're a football fan, but I, I, I presume you understand what I'm saying. And most of your listeners do. It's just a compelling thing to watch. Um, how, how long they can continue to saturate the market. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I, I mean, we know on television, typically imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? It's, uh, I tell my students, I guess it's been almost 30 years now since uh, friends with those six telegenic single people doing nothing except sitting around their apartment became such a hit. And I tell my students, it's such a big hit. You can imagine all the vice presidents of the other network sitting around the table. Well, what are we going to do? Let's come up with a show about single telegenic people doing nothing 
and the next season, almost every network had their new show of single people that are good looking sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's almost comical. Um, so I suppose people will just continue to imitate it until people get sick of it. But right now, I don't know where that point is. Um, I, I could see that year-round football probably is viable. Yeah, and I think a lot of people sort of make the argument that there's plenty of talent out there that the NFL is not um, uh, cannot even at 32 teams uh, uh, fully uh, fully bring on and and are there and the Arena Football League right has been sort of some evidence of that and, and the minor leagues of arena football and stuff. I you know I don't know. It, it remains to be seen whether there is enough quality high level professional talent. Um, but it's just interesting that uh, yeah, and this is part of why we do these these, these shows because I, it it almost feels like an evergreen topic. This uh, teams and leagues no longer existing anymore because you know for every story that we go through, every calamity that we uh, we discuss, every uh, amazing and unbelievable anecdote or or tragedy, uh, you know, and and uh, and dusty tumbleweeds of 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 leagues and teams of yore. Um, there, there just seems to be always a regenerative next group of folk willing to step up to the plate, uh, bring their checkbooks and or their dreams of playing or whatever, and and make another go of it. Uh, uh, you know, despite some of that, uh, that uh, that long odd history. Uh, and you know, it's I think that's why this is, this topic is especially interesting, right? So the you know the fifties and the NFL, right? You know the it's it's very interesting to sort of see because this it, it's not like the NFL of today just sort of magically appeared, right? It, it's a long, hard struggle. And we talked about the twenties and the thirties, right? It was uh, probably just the the abject opposite of what that is today back then. And uh, to understand or not understand, right, some of this, these transitional and transformational times. And I think you know the AAFC and the AFL are convenient, uh, almost uh, 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 bookmarks or. Um, or end marks, right? It, 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 that parenthetically, uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, define uh, the NFL at that point. And I think you could make the argument, as I do, maybe you agree. I don't know that you know the AAFC and the AFL uh, were actually instrumental in helping the NFL get to uh, that sort of maturation point that you know Mr. Roselle and friends uh, took the baton with in the '60s and and and, and blazed forward from there. No, oh, I think that's probably an astute way to think about it. Um, if I may, I would interject one difference between football and baseball is that because baseball is an international sport at this point, and football hasn't really been able to uh, to create the enthusiasm in other countries, baseball has an almost, well, obviously not unlimited, but they have lots of new talent pools that they've grown, whereas I really don't know where football is going to find the talent pool because children around the world don't seem to be very interested in American football. And with the concerns about concussions and so on, if uh, there was a diminution, and I believe there's some evidence in some of the states, I I believe even Texas, there's fewer high school sporting football teams, not a significantly smaller number, but there are some some signs that maybe it's it's peaked. And so where they're going to find players if a lot of the American players no longer want to compete uh, that's an interesting question because baseball went to the Caribbean and gone to Asia. Basketball, of course, has gone worldwide. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see whether football will be able to find new talent pools. Obviously, 
let's say, American Samoan, because there have been a lot of American Samoans who have come and played NFL football. So maybe they need to start thinking about creating some colonies, so to speak, so they'll have a, a pool of people they can they can uh, tap into, because I think that, that might be a problem for them down the road. Because if I had a son, and I mean, we heard the former president say if he had a son, he wouldn't let him play football. And this is not from a person who dislikes sports. <laughs> president Obama loved sports. He played basketball at Hyde Park. And unfortunately, I missed him by a couple of years. So I never got the pleasure of playing against him. But I thought that was an interesting comment that he said he would not let his son play football. So I think that may be a challenge for them down the road. Well, all righty then. Uh, some very interesting historical uh, perspective uh, and some uh, economic and uh, uh, regulatory uh, issues surrounding uh, the National Football League that we know uh, and uh, in many respects love today. Maybe wax nostalgic for some of the older days but here on this little show, but, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but uh, it's very interesting, and I don't think you can fully understand uh, where the NFL is today or its heritage and its history without understanding some of the the, uh, the uh, economic and regulatory changes and evolutions uh, that came because of challenges from uh, leagues like the AAFC in the late 40s and, the, uh, of course, the AFL in, uh, in the early and most of all of, actually, the 1960s. Uh, that's, um, you know, some very interesting uh, uh, texture and context. And it certainly goes beyond the playing field. Uh, and I think it's really interesting and important to kind of understand some of the uh, the, the sort of uh, currents, if you will, of, of change uh, in terms of how uh, the business is run and how economics are done and how people protect those uh, advantages uh, and that kind of stuff. And that's uh, that's why I thought this conversation was especially interesting. The book, of course, is again called Run to Glory and Profits, The Economic Rise of of the NFL during the 1950s, uh, and uh, it is published by uh, the University of Nebraska Press. Of course, you can find that wherever good books are found, but uh, we encourage you, of course, to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Watch your spelling, please. Uh, And there, search up this episode. I think it'll be number 80, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with David Surdam, and you will see, uh, not only along with a um, description of the uh, the show and some imagery there and some uh, interesting... uh, little things that, that you can click to purchase related to this episode. You can, of course, uh, buy this book, uh, which I think you will find uh, thoroughly enjoyable, especially if you uh, fancy yourself uh, a history buff and or uh, somebody who's interested in, in things economic and regulatory about how the NFL became what it is today, uh, especially in the 1950s. You can find a link to the book there. It'll take you to Amazon and we'll get a little love when you uh, decide to purchase the book there. Uh, from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter there, our little weekly uh, tickler, if you will, as to what's uh, what's going to be running and uh, what you might want to look out for. Uh, it's also the place to find an email. If you want to email us, of course, you can email us directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable. And of course, you want to follow us on social media. Gosh darn it. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Twitter uh, at goodseatsstill. You will find us on Instagram uh, at goodseatsstillavailable. And uh, yes, there's even a page devoted to us uh, on Facebook. I don't know how long, frankly, we're going to stay on Facebook. I'm, uh, I'm getting a little tired of it, and frankly, I'm not, uh, I'm not so sure all of our audience uh, thoroughly enjoys that. If you, if you do, 
let us know because that'll maybe keep us uh, on there. But uh, uh, for, for, for there's no doubt that Twitter and, and Instagram will be part of our future. And who knows, maybe some other social networks to come uh, for what that's worth. And for what this is worth, a little promotional nod to our friends at, of course, at Podfly Productions, who help us put uh, all these pieces together every week. And we appreciate the good Dr. Jerry Payne in particular uh, at Podfly. And he can find about more about him and the uh, company at podfly.net. And again, if you're interested in getting into podcasting, you have no idea where to begin, or maybe you are beyond the beginning stage and you just need some help with editing and producing and and some uh, stuff around those kinds of things, podfly.net is the place to go. Podfly Productions, we love them. And I suspect you will too. So give them a try and tell them we sent you, will you? All right, we're going to send you on your way and uh, I'm going to go on my little merry way and try to figure out what the hell we're going to talk about next week. But uh, I'm sure it'll be fun. Uh, and I'll keep your, uh, you keep your fingers crossed and I'll, uh, I'll do the same and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. <laughs>